Welcome to our discussion segment on George Patton and the Third Army. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Let's get started. John, I am constantly amazed at the lack of knowledge when I ask people, you know, have you heard of Audie Murphy or George S. Patton? You know, really? I, yeah. I, maybe I'm asking the wrong crowds, but for one, that's great for us because it means we have a lot of work to do. Two, it's interesting to be surprised in that way. Yeah, really. So as a result of that, I'm probably going to ask you some obvious questions. Some of them are <laughs> okay. related, obviously, to the podcast, but really trying to dive deeper into the person of Patton, like what we see in his actions and how that translates back into who he was. Okay. So you quoted this in the podcast from James chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's interesting that you included that in the podcast about George Patton, and I guess that that, that's where I would like to get started. You outlined in a great way how Patton believed that speech played an important role in leading the army. Where did that idea come from? It very much came from John Pershing, his kind of mentor and role model in the army. Pershing, like Patton, believed in leading from the front. He believed in a commander's presence on the battlefield making a key difference in any military campaign. He wanted his men he's kinda of like a coach. You know, he's he wants to know his his team, you might say. He wants to know his army, know his men, and he wants them to know that he knows them so that they feel more of a sense of camaraderie with their commander than they otherwise might, if okay. the commander is very absent. Okay. Was Patton his words or his actions? That's a good question. It depends on who you ask. To his soldiers, he was his actions. To everyone watching at the time, he was his words. And I think his actions, to coin a phrase, spoke far more loudly than his words. I mean, he he played a vital role in destroying Nazi Germany. Sure. It would have been destroyed without General Patton. As we've talked about in the past, Hitler had never had any chance by 1941 of winning against Britain, America, and Russia. But his drive, his determination, ended a lot of Nazi lives and saved a lot of American lives in the process. Yes, he also got men killed. He did make mistakes something I didn't have time to quote in the podcast, but towards the end of the war, he sent men on a raid to liberate some American POWs, including, I believe it was his son-in-law, who was a family member in some way, and it was a botched raid and got quite a few people killed. So he was not in any way, mm. you know, a god of war who couldn't make mistakes, but he got much more right than he did wrong, especially when you look at his actions. His words, totally different story. So those who were around him those he worked with, defined him by what he did. Those who had no experience around him or working with him or even knowing him judged him by what he said. Well, no, because General Pershing judged him by what he said. That okay. ended a 20-plus year friendship, did, almost 30-year Did Pershing end the, end the friendship or did Patton end it as a result of that conflict? They never spoke again. I don't remember off the top of my head who, who basically said, okay, I'm done. So Pershing heard what he had said Correct. and said— because he was I, in retirement. He was back in the United States watching from afar what's going on in World War II. Gotcha. And as a result, he never—somebody never spoke to the other again. Correct. Like, okay. Why I would he, imagine it was Patton who said, all right, I don't need, I don't need you in my life, okay. but I don't know for sure. Interesting. What level of importance did 
Patton place on history? And how did his study of history influence his life and his work? Oh, tremendously. I mean, it was one of the two subjects he was good at. He learned history from his father and I believe believe from his grandfather. I think his grandfather was still around. Family history was very important to him. He had two ancestors who fought in the Civil War, one who fought in the Revolution. Now, they fought for the Confederacy in the Civil War, but that did not diminish Patton's respect for his own family history. He understood, like many of the people we've talked about over the past six seasons, that the past really is the key to the present, that you, it's good to know where you came from as a person, as a society, whatever, in order to understand where you are and also where you're going. And as a general, how do you learn? You learn by studying the generals of the past. So military training is not just tactics and strategies and logistics and things like that. It's also a very deep dive, or it was then, not less so now, very much a deep dive into military history as well. Okay. How did his study of history and of those generals influence his ego? And, and I'm going to be asking a little bit about that throughout our conversation, just his ego. And then thinking, going back to my question about was he his words or, or his actions, how did that love of history and application of history influence both of those? Well, he, as I kind of teased at the end of the podcast, he was a very strong believer in not just Christianity, but also in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. So he believed that these battles that he is studying, that he had actually witnessed, he believed that he had been in a past life, one of Napoleon's marshals, and he had fought in the armies of Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, and that throughout history, he was sent back basically to lead men in battle. So he has a very deep appreciation for the personalities in history, especially the hard-charging, hard-nosed, gruff, angry generals like Michel Ney in the French Revolutionary Army and in Napoleon's army, like Mark Antony. Not that he believed he was them, but he looked to them and said, I probably served under one of these men in a past life. Is that what contributed to his sense of purpose? Because he had a deep sense of yes, purpose, a drive that, that derived from who he was. And also the faith that God put him in this place at this time to achieve a great task. Okay. In thinking about his leadership style, of all of the historical figures that he studied, that he admired, how did he construct his leadership style with all of those kinds of examples and influences? Did he pick and choose what he liked based on his own personality and sense of purpose? Or was it a conglomeration just based on the moment? It was mostly, again, General Pershing. I mean, everything okay. from, yeah, like I, I mentioned in the text, his war face. So he would actually practice in front of a mirror, that cold stare that you see in some photographs. Whenever he was in front of his men, he would assume that image of this cold, calculating general modeled on General Pershing. His profanity, that's every general, not every, that's most generals throughout history in all countries at all times. And his drive to be a harsh but firm disciplinarian, to train himself and to train his men, again, that comes from his study of history, looking back to generals like Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman, also much further back to Napoleon, to Frederick the Great, going back into the Middle Ages and even before. You've talked about Pershing a lot so far in terms of his, the value of his influence on General Patton. Where did he say, okay, I'm going to reject some of this and I'm going to keep some of it? I confess I'm not sure. Okay. I can speak through extrapolation. 
are you talking about like how the public reacted to General Pershing versus how they reacted to Patton, or are you talking about no his if, own personality? Yeah, sorry. If General Pershing were standing in front of the troops and he was interacting with them, com- mm-hmm. contrast that with General Patton standing Almost in front of the, the troops. Really? Yes. Pershing would have been a little less profane, but in terms of being harsh when necessary, being kind of cold and distant, even you know, even with troops that he liked, that's Pershing, that's Patton. In terms of the desire for discipline and the push for excellence, that's both of them. Pershing had a better mustache. Patton couldn't grow facial hair. He did have a hair. great mustache. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously other differences between the men, but in terms of their command style, they were very... Very similar. Okay. Patton was a little more bloodthirsty in his in his rhetoric and in his deeds. During the Mexican campaign in 1916, the first two men he killed using an armored car, he bolted their bodies to the tops of the vehicle to like bring it back and show the men, see, this is what we can do. I don't think Pershing would have done that. Okay. Why do you think he was that way? Why was he violent? No, I mean... Because war is violent. Yeah. What was the, I don't want to call it restraint, what was the reason why Pershing would not have done that? Well, I don't know as much about Pershing. He may have done that when he was younger and when he was in the same. But at his stage in life, Pershing kind of was like, okay, George, thanks. It's kind of like when your cat brings in a dead mouse. You're like, oh, thank you. (laughs) Now kindly put it away. That's an interesting analogy, yeah. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) What did mechanized warfare become as a result of Patton? As a result of Patton? Okay, so you have to distinguish between World War I and World War II. Patton built America's World War I mechanized force. As I said in the podcast, almost single-handedly. It's one of, the, one of his all greatest... All the training, contra- all yeah. the manuals, Oh, everything. he wrote everything. Okay. And then he, in the interwar years, he became, as, it's, as I said, the expert on American mechanized war. But Blitzkrieg revolutionized mechanized warfare everywhere in the world. That combination of motorized infantry, fast-moving tanks, and close-in air support from fighters and fighter bombers, that wasn't Patton. Those were the Germans. That was Guderian and Rommel and those guys. Patton took that, incorporated it into existing American doctrine, and then turned it on the Germans. And his tactics and strategies are still taught and still studied at West Point, but it's in an amalgamation of that whole generation of leaders. American, British, French, and German. So America got its start in mechanized warfare because of General Patton. But American mechanized warfare today is very different than what it was under Patton's training and, sure. and doctrines. Did his, his technology Yeah, changes. yeah, of course. In thinking about specifically World War II, would it have been different if not for General Patton's advances in World War I? Would there would, have, uh, like the American army? Yeah, would there have been a, a tactical focus on creating Shermans that we pumped out on assembly lines? Yeah. Would armor have been a central focus in warfare if not for Patton? How yes. far did yes. okay. World, okay. World War One showed everyone that tanks are the decisive weapon on the battlefield? Okay. So even without Patton, Patton gave us the foundation of knowledge. American. Of Amer- yeah, gave specifically okay. the United States the foundation of knowledge that it needed to build a mechanized army. So I want to go back to his sense of purpose for a moment. Okay. How did this purpose that, that you've defined well in our conversation here and in the podcast conflict with the reality of what he faced outside of the battlefield? So I'm thinking politics, 
relationships that he needed in order to have his command, mm-hmm. it seemed like his purpose was singular. Is that fair to say? Like singular, singular. being war, singular well, being yes. battle, conflict. Yes, absolutely. Outside of that, he seemed out of place. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. He was very much a man out of time. He belonged in the Middle Ages or in the era of glorious warfare, kind of the late 17th, early 18th centuries. He was very much out of place in the 20th century. Is that one of the things that went into his belief in reincarnation, that he believed himself to be a it man out of time? It may have. I don't know to what degree, because he, he doesn't get very like self-reflective in his war okay. diary. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. How self-aware was he about his being out of place? Well, his, no, I mean, based on his war diary, which I read in preparation for the podcast, he, you know, he's like a lot of men of that era. He's not looking into himself and trying to figure out, okay, why am I feeling this way? <laughs> he it's, probably didn't have time either. No, either. well, no, he didn't. I mean, it's, it's short, you know, here are my, here was my order of the day. We took this bridge, we took this position, we killed this number of people, boom, boom, boom. He doesn't even mention the slapping incident, mm. uh, except that he visited a field hospital. Interesting. Yeah. In thinking about the purpose, was that a main ingredient or a driver for his ego? I don't know whether that was part of his ego. I think it was, I'm speculating, and I am not a psychologist, so I'm basically quoting what other people have written about him. I think Patton was a very insecure person. Really? I do. I think deep down, because he, again, he creates a persona. Everything that you see, whether you've seen the 1970 movie Patton, which all of you should watch, it's fantastic. <laughs> Agreed. It's pretty awesome. Or, you, or you've or you listened to this and you're thinking, okay, I want to I want to read about Patton and, and learn more, in which case read Carlo Deste's book. But everything written about Patton, and even if you look at interviews with his children and his grandchildren, he was a completely different person in a lot of ways when he was not being Patton the soldier. He was still gruff. He was still profane. He was a complete jerk to his wife for a long period of time in their marriage. He resented her because she was a successful novelist. She published, I know, one, possibly two novels. Really? At a time, this is between World War I and World War II, where Patton doesn't feel like he has any purpose in himself because the American army, after World War I, demobilizes most of its tanks right. and turns the tank school into a purely theoretical exercise. You know, he's aging, he hits a midlife crisis, and he cheats on his wife. And he gets mad at her. He resents her. He has a horrible relationship with, especially their second daughter, with Ruth Ellen, the one who's like swearing as a, as a fifth grader in, in school. Yeah. They do not get along for a very long time. It's only when World War II breaks out and Patton senses, okay, my time is coming, that he reconnects with his wife, reconnects with his children, and becomes genuinely a good father and a good husband. So the fact that he resented his wife for her success, the fact that he has to present a persona that he feels he can't be who he is, that would suggest to me that he might be a little bit insecure. Is it insecurity or is it really just feeling like you don't have a purpose? If you don't have a it purpose— could, It could be that. And I wouldn't call that insecurity. I don't take insecurity to be an insult. No, no. I'm just trying to—it's it's really interesting. I had no idea— I figured, and that goes back to my earlier question about, was Patton his words or his actions? Mm-hmm. So was he who he was? Was he the same man on the battlefield as he was at home? Did, did he change who he was depending on his environment? He changed how he interacted with other people. I don't think he changed like who he was as okay. a person, but he's the confident general who always knows what he has. He, I mean, it's the same as 
in a completely different sphere, nowhere near as important, as teachers and police officers and a lot of public servants, they have to present themselves in a different way. You do. As a, as a yeah. leader of men and women in an office, you have to do the same thing. But for Patton, that persona is so hard-charging, I wonder if it wasn't yeah. compensating for a sense of insecurity. And again, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. No, it's just, it's a very interesting point. And I wonder, just taking it a, a bit further, if the sense of purpose that he felt seemed so large to him that it was like, how am I going to do this? Oh, I think, well... N- not how, but it yeah, was on his he mind. Had, he, was, he was completely self-confident in terms of his military abilities. He did not doubt them at all. He doubted his ability to be a husband, to be a father, and to live in a world at peace. He really struggled during the 20 years between World War I and World War II and in the you know seven, eight months after World War II. That's a great point and a great segue. I want to contrast him with Churchill. Okay, okay. So Churchill and Patton, obviously, not the same. No, <laughs> but, not at all. But these figures seemed made for their time. Churchill specifically he had the time when you know um when he's in the wilderness or yeah alone when he was alone yeah. like between the wars when he pretty much was out of power patents similarly uh he's still in the army but not doing a whole lot were these men suited for this time specifically because the actions that were required of them were so specific or is it something else are these just you mentioned earlier that Patton seems to be a man out of time. Mm-hmm. It seems like also he was born and lived during during the time when that suited him best. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting thing. Everything was focused on singularly these two world wars, the two major things in their life. Uh, I invite everybody to go back and hear the Churchill yes. podcast episodes. One of your best. Thank you. I really enjoyed those. But it, it's it's just... one of the few good ones you've written. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you knew it was that. coming. Please keep that up. <laughs> it's. I'm always fascinated by when you focus on a particular task and you give it everything that you have, you generally do that task well, if you care about it. Usually, yeah. Yeah. If you're spread out and you're unfocused, you're not sure where to concentrate your time, so you spread everything out, multitask, all Mm -hmm. that. You're not as successful. So is Although, and we'll come back to this, but Montgomery is an interesting exception to that, but we'll come to him. Yeah. So I'm just curious about your opinion as a historian. Does the time make the person or does the person make themselves in that time? I mean, I mean, the, the bottom line is that you adapt to whatever circumstances you find yourself in, in. Or you don't. Or you don't. Yeah. You adapt and are successful or you fail to adapt and you find yourself overwhelmed by events. You contrast Patton with someone like Ambrose Burnside in the American Civil War, who on paper is absolutely qualified to lead an army in battle. Patton ends almost every single battle, really every single battle, victorious. Burnside, he commands in one battle, and he ends it having a mental breakdown in his tent, hunched over, rocking back and forth, simply saying, those men, those men, those poor men, that he had sent to battle because he could not adapt to the changed battlefield conditions that were imposed on him by Robert E. Lee. Patton, very good at adapting and watching what's going on on a map, or because he was always up with his men from his tank or his jeep, watching what's going on, going, okay, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. Great okay. men see obstacles, adapt to them, overcome them, and hold the enemy by the nose and kick him in the balls. Right. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, one of my favorite lines from the Patton movie is when he's giving the speech at the beginning, and he said, we are going to reach into their living guts. We're going to carve out their living guts. We're going yes. to carve out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. Yep. We are going to murder them by the bushel. 
they had to severely curtail the amount of profanity in that movie. And that was that movie was scandalous when it came out. Yeah. A lot of people are like, oh my gosh, there's so much profanity in there. <laughs> you read the whole thing. Him like crap through a goose. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, only he didn't say crap. I'm no, sure. he did not. <laughs> I read portions of the speech bleeping. I just said bleep whenever whenever Patton would, would swear to my military history class this year. And one of my students, I was kind of impressed with how bold he was. He had his phone out under the table and he's reading along and he's just laughing himself silly because Patton is so eloquent with his profanity. You're like, who, who would think to swear like this? I can only come up with one other person who's that good. And that's Arlie Ermey, the guy who's oh, from in Full Metal Jacket. From Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. Yes, that that <laughs> almost all unscripted. That whole scene, what like only a couple of takes. Yeah, he just did it. I I saw an interview from a drill sergeant. Side note, where he was, he quoted that scene. He said that is every drill sergeant's like goal to be that profane. He said we always screwed up. No one, no one is as fluent in profanity as as he was. Yeah, it was so great. Not endorsing profanity for our audience members, especially if we have little ones <laughs> who are here. We don't we don't need fifth graders going <laughs> getting in trouble. You know, John and Joe said in the podcast that we could be profane. No, 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 no. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about Montgomery for a moment. Thinking about the contrast of the egos, they're both massive. They're both uncontrolled, unrestrained. Yeah. It seems like, based on Patton's actions, that his ego drove him toward more battlefield success than Montgomery's ego did for him. And mm. I say that, I'm trying to be fair, as yeah. an American, yeah, yeah. it just seemed like, thinking about the Messina campaign, as an example, Patton did get there first. He, he did. did it, he did it at a great cost. He did. And his drive across Europe, he did do it faster. It motivated Montgomery to speed up his advance. Mm -hmm. Why was that? I'm sorry. Am I wrong? Am I wrong in well, that assessment? And so, if I'm right, why did one ego do that for him? And why did it do that you're for You're forgetting Mike? one very important battle. And it was before Patton entered the campaign. And that's El Alamein. For Montgomery and for the British as a whole, they've experienced two and a half years almost of constant defeat at the hands of the German on land. Yes, they're doing well at sea. Yes, they're doing okay in the air, but on land, they have been getting their butts kicked since 1940. Montgomery is able to turn it around. Now, he is not the tactician that Patton is. He is a strategist, and he is a brilliant strategist. He looks at any kind of battlefield, and immediately it's like he's in a drone or in a plane looking at it from the top down. He is able to see, okay— Based on what I'm seeing from standing in this position in this Jeep looking out, I know where the enemy is going to be. I know the best avenues of attack, and he is almost universally right. So what happened with where Khan, he, then? Where he fails is as a tactician. He is not able to be aggressive enough to move onto the enemy, grab them by the nose, and kick them in their you know sensitive areas with the same speed that Patton is. He is not able to move with the same level of aggression as General Patton. Can you define what Montgomery calls strategy and what he calls tactics? Because my understanding and application mm -hmm. of the development of a strategy and then the application of that strategy is our tactics, right? Yes. And yeah, then, strategy and, is an yeah. entire battle space. So, for example, Montgomery planning out an entire campaign from El Alamein straight through to Tunisia. 
That's a strategy. That entire thousand-mile campaign. Okay. Tactics are, we have engaged the enemy at El Alamein. We have engaged the enemy at Tobruk. We've engaged them at Sirt. We've engaged them at Benghazi. What are we going to do in those certain situations? Because you can have a battlefield strategy specifically for an engagement. Well, that's more tactics. Again, based on the traditional definitions used by military scholars, you've got grand strategy, which is military, diplomacy, economic warfare, all of that put together. Then strategy, which is we've got a certain area of operations, could be the continent of Europe, could be a country, but it's a series of campaigns towards a single objective. Then you have operations, which is one battle space. Then you have tactics, which is one battle, from big to very small. So Montgomery was able to map out everything. Whole campaigns. Taking into account the support that he required, the politics of each move. Correct. The supply chain to resupply his armies as they advanced. That's what he was really good at. Yes. Okay. When it came to actually engaging the enemy, he was very cautious. Now, some of that was necessary. <laughs> seems like counterproductive. Well, okay. I was actually reading up on this because I figured we were going to talk about Montgomery. So I grabbed a couple of biographical extracts from some books that I have. Churchill and the British War Cabinet told Montgomery, listen, we are about to be supplanted in terms of grand strategy by the United States and by the Soviet Union in the Allied war effort and kind of just in global politics. If you lose too many troops, if your army group, the 21st Army Group that you are leading in, specifically talking about Normandy now, which is where his caution really got a lot of people hurt. If your army group takes serious casualties and we lose basically the British army or a large portion of it, we are no longer a great nation. So we hate to do this to you, General Montgomery, or Field Marshal Montgomery at this point, but the future of the British Empire as a world power rests on your shoulders. Okay. That's going, yeah, and I had read that years ago, but I had kind of forgotten about that. You kind of understand. Well, no kidding. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I wish wish I'd read that last week because I would have put it in the podcast. Because, yeah, I kind of made him sound like a, like a bit of an idiot. He's not. He is just as driven and just as dedicated to excellence in his life. And he suffered, I mean, horrific losses. His wife of only a few years died in 1937. He, he led a very, very troubled life. But it made him into the soldier he was. He's just carrying the burden, not just of his army, but of like the whole future of the British Empire, all because he was the next guy in line for a command. He was not supposed to command the 8th Army. It was supposed to go to General William Gott, who got shot down by the Germans two days into his command of the 8th Army. So now it's like, well, okay, it's going to be Montgomery. Was he shot down on the way to take command? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. he was commander of the 8th Army for two days, never actually reached the headquarters. Was Patton aware of this? I don't think so. Because Patton And I don't know that Patton would have cared. He kind of... Well, I I just think it adds as much needed context to the lack of tactical application of the strategy. To an extent, that's true. And maybe... But no, he probably... I mean, we didn't... Historians didn't know about that conversation until the 1960s between Churchill and the War Cabinet and Montgomery, where they said, you've got to keep your army intact. That that was finally released. I believe it was in the 1960s, maybe the 1950s. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Didn't know that. Yeah. Interesting. So, all right. So, speaking of Montgomery, uh, I want to go back to Patton, talk okay. about the North Africa. Uh, specifically, in the Patton film, there's a scene where he's taking command, and uh, he's in this small town that 
is attacked by two German bombers. Oh, I love that scene. I do too. <laughs> and he, they just got done having a conversation about how the British have air superiority. Yeah. And not the British, the Allies. The Allies. Yeah. We have total air superiority. Yeah. yeah. Everywhere very, in the Mediterranean. Very, very, very confident. That was a horrible British accent. I apologize to all Brits I, I, everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Please be mad at John. That would be my preference. Anyways, he tolerates being attacked for a couple minutes and then he's like, that's enough. Yes. Like, he like takes out his handgun, jumps on top of a car and starts shooting at these planes. Did that happen, first thing? And second thing, like, what were the circumstances, the, the real ones? So the Allies did struggle with the occasional German raid. Yes, they had complete air supremacy in the Mediterranean, but the occasional very, very aggressive and very daring German pilot would take off from a base somewhere in Italy and try and mount a raid somewhere in the Tunisian area of North Africa. I'm trying to remember, I don't think Carlo Deste or any of the other biographies that I've read of Patton mention that incident, but a lot of times in film, as you know, you kind of have to amalgamate certain moments in a film from, a, take it from a variety of sources. Yeah. There's a moment in that film where Patton meets Montgomery in Messina, and he says, Montgomery says, don't worry, Patton, I shan't kiss you. And Patton says, oh, that's a pity because I've, I shaved particularly close in, in preparation for getting smacked by you. Didn't happen. Yeah. But Patton did say that to General Allenbrook, another British general, at another point in the campaign. There was a moment in the Mexican expedition where Patton, who always carried at least two guns with him, he had a- Ivory a Colt, pistols. He had, well, he had one. He had an ivory, uh, ivory-handled Colt single-action army, which he replaced after his 1911 randomly went off in a tavern. And he was like, okay, maybe- Maybe that's uh, not a good idea. Oh, choose a revolver. Yes, so he picked a revolver. So he had his ivory handle, and then he had a Walter PPK, this tiny little 380 or 9 millimeter short that he would just keep like tucked in his pants and pointed in a rather dangerous direction. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend that. No, do not do that. No, but he was standing in an armored car firing at a couple of Mexican banditos from Pancho Villa's rebel group. Hmm. And so the filmmakers probably took that and was like, it would be really funny if he's standing on the roof of a car shooting at a German plane. <laughs> Interesting how these scenes are constructed yeah, in yeah. the recent It is a walk. great movie, though. I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's it doesn't end. It doesn't yeah. end with Patton's death, which I kind of appreciated because after this, you know, hard charging victory across Europe. It's very artistic how it that ends. Way. Yeah, it's, it's the, a really um, good. The, the Roman Conqueror speech yeah. is very. I would recommend it. Yeah, yeah. One Academy Awards, George C. Scott got Patton perfectly except for his voice because Patton's voice was ridiculously high. <laughs> Do you know that? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, watching a biography done that was done of Patton, and one of the soldiers who was in his you know 80s or 90s when he was interviewed, he would talk about how you would walk past General Patton in any headquarters, and he would answer the phone. He would also an always answer his phone in exactly the same way. He'd say, General Patton! <laughs> okay. That was... <laughs> okay. He had a very, very high voice. That's hilarious. And George C. Scott has this like deep, gruff, stentorious gruff, tone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in thinking through his progress, leaves North Africa after that win... Mm -hmm. Attacks the soft underbelly of Europe. And then it gets in trouble. Um, rightfully so. Rightfully so. You talked about in the podcast what they called shell shock, we now call PTSD. Mm -hmm. What happened? I mean, you, you told us what happened in the podcast, but can you add any details that you didn't have time to include? So from what I've read, and again, just as I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor, but my understanding is that during World War I and World War II, they believed that shell shock was an emotional affliction. We now know that PTSD actually is a physical change yeah. in the brain or chemical change in the brain. So this whole idea of, well, suck it up, buttercup, you know, you're just a blanking coward. 
even the most hard-nosed Marines or Army officers or anyone like that, they physically cannot just shake it off or something like that if they are suffering from PTSD. I wonder if Patton, armed with the knowledge, the medical knowledge of what PTSD does to the human brain that we have now in the 21st century, if he would have been as harsh back then. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't, obviously, I don't know. This is a what if. I'm throwing a shoe at myself after we're, after we're done here. Yeah, so after the slapping incident, he's taken off the field. Yep, he loses the command of the 7th Army. Germans don't trust what... <laughs> what's, cause they, I love that. Yeah, they're just like, no way would he get in trouble for Well, for and that. look at it from their perspective. I mean, would a German officer get in no. trouble for... Sla- no, of course not. No, so Patton gets a command back after D-Day, mm-hmm. starts his advance. Spends I, the first time before D-Day. I mean, you kind of skipped over the whole at FUSAG operation trying to trying to deceive the germans as to where the invasion was going to happen i mean that was a huge part of why normandy was so successful there was not a single german tank as far as i know anywhere on the normandy battlefields yeah because they were all concentrated at calais if they had been allowed to roll up and attack at normandy d-day could have been a very very different situation and it was hitler himself who said this is just a this is just a diversion. This is not the real invasion. The real invasion will come from Calais and it will be launched by Patton. There was also a substantial amount of armor near Normandy that they were ordered not to attack. Yeah, that was in Calais. That's okay. what we're talking okay. about. Yeah, it was the 15th Army. That was a that was an armored unit. And yeah, they didn't want to wake they didn't want to wake up Hitler to ask him to reinforce Normandy. There right? was that, but even when they did wake him up, he said, Nope, this is not the real invasion. Okay. He was convinced. Like Everyone in the in so they the were so OKW. afraid of General Patton. Not, I don't know afraid. Or respected they respected him. Respected him. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he was in a lot of ways a very Prussian general. I want to drive to pardon the pun. The hundred first being surrounded in Bastogne. So in Bastogne during that battle, the Germans never hit the hundred first all at once. They chose specific points to hit the hundred first, and that allowed the paratroopers to concentrate their defenses on each particular point. I've read that if the Germans had advanced all at once, they would never have have held it, or it would have been. Not- oh yeah, I mean, it was the Germans had twenty nine divisions in the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, but most of them are pushing outward, and Bastogne is behind the line, so right. they're only able to send a fraction of their forces to actually attack Bastogne. No. at a certain point, it seemed like the hundred first was the Germans believed, and there's no way that you're going to hold out. We order you to surrender. How did the? <laughs> tell me what the hundred first commander said. General Anthony McAuliffe, after a particularly difficult day of fighting, it was not an order. It was actually an offer. You know, we will we will accept your surrender and we will provide you with food and blankets and warm clothing, <laughs> etc. And Anthony McAuliffe sent back a one word. He said, to the commander of such and such a German division, nuts. Great, great response. It Was that... Did that I ex- can only I can only imagine what Patton would have said. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Like, did that help motivate Patton to like? I gotta. Yes. Yeah. He um, there was a line in the film Patton where he says, "A man that eloquent needs to be saved." He <laughs> and and General McAuliffe they did get along particularly well. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Uh, tell me about him peeing in the Rhine. Why was that a thing? <laughs> I don't jump. Well, to- that was a that was a jump. Well, I, I was uh, <laughs> I rewound that the podcast a couple times. I'm like, he did what? Like, why was that his go to? I mean, it's the great you know natural barrier between France and Germany for centuries. Invaders had tried to cross the Rhine. Some had succeeded. Others had failed. And he just he wanted to memorialize it. And so he had a. There's actually a photograph 
taken from a censored angle of him standing there. And you can tell it's very clear what he's doing. He's not going to like pants around his ankles or anything like that. So he's in P as a four-year-old. Yeah, that's good. But if you go to that spot today, and I have been there, there is a photographer set up at precisely that angle. And you can get your own version. And you are allowed, if you want to, to actually pee into the Rhine. It's hilarious. <laughs> Didn't, I cannot confirm or deny whether or not I have a photograph of myself. Didn't Churchill pee on a busted bunker on the Siegfried line? I think he did. I have not studied Churchill's urinary habits, uh, so I, I, I don't inadvertent know. random facts. <laughs> was, that got, in, was that in Roberts's biography? I don't was, remember that. It was. Okay. like Because when Churchill got there, obviously the battle was long yeah. over. There's no conflict there. And one of the first things he did was he went to a busted bunker and peed all over the busted bunker. It's hilarious and awesome at the same time. It's a very Churchillian thing to do. We do have a couple of audience questions before we uh, end right. our awesome discussion. Patton was in the Olympics? Yes, he what, was. For what did he, he was win? A, it was either pentathlon or decathlon. I think it was the pentathlon. He ran. He dueled with a sword. He rode. He shot with a pistol. I think that's pentathlon, if I'm getting that right. Okay. In the 19, it would have been, oh gosh, 1924 Olympics, the army sent him, and they sent him with two months' notice. So he just, he didn't have any kind of formal training. He didn't hire any, you know, experts from previous Olympics or anything like that. He simply ran as fast as he could. He jumped as hard as he could. He shot, he fought, he, he, that's it. He was just like, all right, I'm going to be the best. And he came in, I think, fourth in one event okay. and fifth in others. He came very close to winning a medal. He beat more people than he lost to. That's, wow. <laughs> Obviously, a much younger man than he was when he oh, was yeah, leading, of course, leading the of army. Course. It was a very, um, but very... yeah, it was between World War I and World War II. I think it was in 19, it was either 1920 or 1924. Interesting. And then one final audience question. We uh, would like to hear your favorite memory of getting into trouble as a young teacher. Oh, gosh. Because of your... A big fat mouth. Wow. <laughs> okay. I think I know who sent this question, and uh, we'll be having a conversation with her. Now, I added the last part. She oh, did not yeah, say yeah, yeah. No. Um, This was my first year as a teacher, and I had no experience. Let's just say I was not the most tactful of human beings. And you probably remember this, because you knew me back then. But I was at a school that paid you by the number of students you had, which is kind of an interesting system back then. More schools do it nowadays, uh, homeschool co-ops university model schools, things like that. Halfway through the year, they offered a class that was a direct competitor to one of mine. And it was a class that I did not think very highly of in terms of like the educational quality. I remember. You remember this? And I made the mistake of commenting repeatedly, even after being told, hey, knock it off, about how much I disapproved of this new class in my classes. So I was disparaging another class and another teacher, and another subject, and it got to the point where my boss pulled me in and said, listen, you need to consider yourself to have been fired. Now, talk to me about why I should rehire you, basically. Wow. And it was very similar, in my mind, to my freshman year of college. I tend to be a very stubborn human being. I think you probably know that about what? me. What? I know. Ridiculous. I got to college convinced that I was a great writer, and one of my professors had to literally shred one of my papers and pour it out of an envelope to say, this is what I think of your paper, for me to realize I don't know everything about academic writing. 
because I went to a college prep school thinking that it would prepare me for college, and it didn't. And that same thing that happened there. I mean, I was, I was fired from this school. Yeah, so I, I had to eat a fair amount of humble pie, and my boss was gracious, and it's actually the same school that I still teach at now, 17 years later. But it was, yeah, that was a, that was a humbling moment. I, I didn't have to apologize to this other teacher or to my students or anything like that. I didn't, I didn't have to endure Patton's level of humiliation, but I, got some, I, I had to eat some humble pie in that meeting. That was, that was pretty rough. Yeah. We all... We all have moments like, well, not maybe not all of you. Some of you are better able to control your tongues than I am. I have many of those moments I look back on. Okay, well, sure. since I had to tell a story, now you get to. Oh, there's so many to choose from. I don't know <laughs> which, which one. Um, early in my career, I was put in charge of a small group. I was way too young and inexperienced to, to get that role. And I did not have a servant leadership mentality. It was very much... My way or the highway, just do what I say. I don't care. I was what you call a grenade thrower. I would make comments or I would, if something, somebody did something that I disapproved of, I would directly describe why I didn't approve of it with no consideration towards having a conversation to look for a solution rather than saying, well, here's what I think of this and then kind of back out. That is not leadership. Mm. And so, I had some very more mature people in my life who saw me do this several times. And the, the value of this kind of input is, is immeasurable. They took the time and they said, hey, Joe, uh, we're going to take you off this team. We need you to mature and grow in these areas. And here's why. At first, I was resentful. I uh, blamed everybody but myself. And even to the point where I said, but I was right. And it's like, well, you were right sometimes. But what was the fruit of you throwing these grenades? Was it suddenly people are motivated to do a better <laughs> job? Was it you have equipped them to be successful? Was it you have set a positive example for them to follow and encouraged that followership rather than trying to whip them forward, right? Mm. And there was no fruit. It was the exact opposite of all those things. So eating humble pie, very, very thankful for people calling that out, one, very thankful, uh, citing faith here for the Lord's correction, mm -hmm. because it's because of him that I was able to see, okay, yeah, I was wrong. And um, as a result of going through that that challenge, I grew. And I'm not perfect, but it's still... True. It's still, <laughs> you can attest to that, John. <laughs> no, it's, it's very much like uh, we all go through this, and we have the choice in these moments to either grow or not. If we don't grow, we stay exactly where we are, and you wouldn't have had a job. Mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't have had a job, but we would have held on to that thing so hard. Yep. We'd be like, I'm right, I'm right. I know I'm right. I know I'm right yeah. as the world passes us by. So I've had many of those kinds of circumstances where I've had these growth opportunities and been blessed by people around me to say, you got to stop. Hmm. As we close out the season, John, uh, when we're thinking about heroes, what are some final pieces of advice that you can give our audience as we encourage them to continue reading about heroes in history? What are ways that they can garner the, the lessons that those lives and actions teach us? And then through the gaining of that knowledge, what are some ways by which they can apply the history that they've studied? Well, to the second point, I mean, it really depends on what the lesson is and who the hero you're reading about is, because, I mean, you would apply the lessons from Patton differently than someone like maybe Murray Curie or Mohandas Gandhi or someone like that. 
so I think that you need to be open to these lessons and just and just you know take as much in as you can. I think that's where I would start. I would say to audience members, and I hope that you all have enjoyed this season on Heroes, I would encourage you to read and learn and, and watch documentaries. And, and however you consume content, whether it's on paper or electronically or something like that, don't look for heroes in our world today. They do exist, and there are a lot of them, but look to the past. Whether it's in politics, there are not many heroes there, or in the military, there's more, or in culture, or in medicine, or in science, or wherever it is, I would encourage you to look into the past and look for these heroes. And I would suggest that, one, you cast as wide a net as possible, because you find heroes in every walk of life. And two, and this is my main takeaway from General Patton, and it bears repeating here, don't mistake heroes for saviors. Heroes are men and women who have done great things. They have cured diseases. They have won battles and wars. They have inspired generations. But every hero that we have on this earth still has flaws. One, learn from those flaws. Learn from those mistakes. As Joe and I talked about a few minutes ago, we had moments where we had to, like General Patton, apologize and pull back from you know a situation where we knew we were right. I'm sure General Patton knew that he was right when he slapped those two soldiers. We need to learn from our heroes just as much as they learn from their mistakes. We need to learn from them as well. And two, don't be trapped by the current trend to say that if there's any bad in anyone's past, cancel them, don't listen to them, reject them as, pick your adjective. Understand that each one of us as human beings, we are flawed. Embrace the good, reject the bad, learn from the good, also learn from the bad, learn what not to do. But don't look for perfection in the men and women that we look up to. There are many, many heroes in this world, but there really is only one savior. Thank you for joining us on our discussion of George Patton and the Third Army. I'm Joe Parker. And I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. As we wrap up this, our sixth season here on 15 Minute History, we want to thank everyone in our audience for listening each and every week. We appreciate each one of you. We're going to take the next couple weeks off, and we will release a season-closing episode on Monday, July 10th. Thanks, and we will see you in a couple weeks.